everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Faith in Action podcast, brought to you by Christian Union at Penn. I'm your host, Tommy Kumpf, for this episode, here with my one and only Isaiah Scott Smith co-host. Yo, 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 what's up? <laughs> Isaiah, why are we here today? We are here for the absolute treat of invert. Invo- how do you say that word? Interviewing. 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 I went to speech therapy when I was in kindergarten. We are here to interview Caleb Watt. Wait, so did I. No way. I had a lisp. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't say cookie, but yeah, we're here today to interview Caleb Watt, um, to hear about his testimony, to hear about his experience with Christian Union, his thoughts for Christian Union. For those of you who don't know, Caleb is one of our executive board members, that's pretty exciting. So to get us started <laughs> off, Caleb, could you please share a little bit about yourself? Hi. Um, you've heard me before, hopefully. Um, same voice, same person. Um, I'm bald right now. That's kind of fun. <laughs> and I'm sitting in front of a mirror as we're recording this so I can see my head. That's also really fun. Um, I'm Chinese, despite the last name. Yes, my parents are did not adopt me. They birthed me. Um, I don't know. What should I say? Big into sound, big into music, like to weight lift, although I'm small. <laughs> I break dance a bit. Uh. <laughs> Christian Union's dope. Sophomore. Oh, yeah, I'm a sophomore. Mm. Studying physics. Big physics guy. Rising junior. Rising junior. Yeah, it's beautiful. Idea. So, Caleb. Yes, Tommy. My understanding is you have prepared in some part this testimony. So, oh. what I would normally ask is how, yeah, start from the beginning. Start from the um, so when was the first moment that Jesus became relevant in your life? Well, start from the beginning. This is a, despite what you just said, Tommy, I don't think I really prepared all that much. So that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm going to hate myself uh, when I'm editing this. I'm going to be like, Caleb says all the dumb things. <laughs> He's going to have all these awkward pauses. Anyways, yeah. So just as a disclaimer before I like really get into it. If anyone's listening to this and wants to know more, please ask, um, because I am going to be a little bit closed off in terms of how I talk about some people, because it's, it's not like tragic or like traumatic things happen to me, but like I just don't want to talk about people in a certain way, especially on a podcast. So yeah, but feel free to ask afterwards, because I'm pretty open with that sort of stuff. But anyways, I always grew up in the church. My parents met in church, in Chinese church in Philly, uh, after immigrating here from Hong Kong. So Hong Kong is great. And for like ever, like I remember seeing pictures of me in church, like as a baby. So I literally grew up in church. My dad, I think was at certain points in time, like a deacon in the church and served a lot. And my mom made sure we always went to church. And, but I think around kindergarten was when we moved out of our Chinese church or the second Chinese church that we went to and went to a predominantly white church, um, closer to where we lived in our neighborhood because I think the church we went to at the time, which a lot of our friends in CU went to also in high school, taught Sunday school in Chinese or something. And so they were like, oh, Caleb and Josh, my younger brother, don't speak Mandarin. They can't understand what's going on. So we'll take them to a church that teaches Sunday school in English. And so I started at Fairview in kindergarten. And I think the first time that I really came to accept Christ was um, when I was nine years old playing upward basketball. For those of you who know what upward basketball is, it's a church league basketball that's like every child's a winner. 
uh, we get devotionals throughout the <laughs> entirety of the of the practices and like mm. they keep score, but then if one team's winning too badly, then they clear the score and start over. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I I was a I was an absolute beast at uh, upward basketball, but like I I was nine years old um, or however old I was, and um, I remember it was the last practice. Last practice. This is the formula how it happens. The coach always goes through the gospel, like this is who Jesus is, and invites you to accept Jesus. But Coach Marinello, I'm telling you, if you're out there somewhere listening to this, probably not. But like his illustration with the dollar bill, he wrote something on a dollar bill and said something, really hit nine-year-old Caleb in a different way because he was like, whoa, this Jesus thing is real. So (laughs) nine-year-old Caleb accepted Jesus and didn't really know what it meant for a long part of his life. I don't think I really considered like who Jesus was again until like sixth grade. Like, and I think I, I say that because like the period between first or third and or fourth or whatever, I, I forget how old nine-year-olds are, um, and sixth grade was characterized by like a season of like, every time I went to a VBS, every time I went to church, I would always uh, quote unquote rededicate my life to Christ because it's like, oh no, I'm not doing good enough. I need to recommit and I need to do better. But in sixth grade, it was, uh, it was an interesting year because that's the year I got baptized not Presbyterian family. I know. Uh, that's okay. Didn't get sprinkled as a child. Um, but I got baptized in sixth grade, but also sixth grade was the first year I started using pornography. Um, and that was, that was like for Caleb Watt, that was like, Oh no, what is going on? And I remember that was the beginning of me feeling like I was racked by guilt, like every single day, like every day that it happened or even that I even thought about it, I would be like, wow, I'm such an awful human being. And I remember from the period between sixth and eighth grade, I would just think constantly like, God, if this is so bad, why don't you take this from me? Or why do I keep putting myself through this thing knowing that it's a bad thing? And I don't think I truly understood what it meant to love God or rely on God in that sense at the time um, and to especially seek the help that I needed um, in the ways that God was providing it through his grace. But through six, uh, up until eighth grade, eighth grade was really the year everything came to like a head because I was getting getting like deeper into it like fortunately i was blessed enough to have parents who were like oh we're installing like safeguards on your computer and stuff like that not knowing that i was not getting into it but i found ways around it because you know eighth graders and it was yeah i remember just just coming home day after day and being like i'm not i'm not doing it and then being like okay i am doing it and then like god why am i such an awful like despicable human being like just feeling the deep guilt um, but not knowing what to do about it. And so at the, in eighth grade was eighth grade was then at the end of it characterized by a season of like for the first time really doubting who God was. I remember thinking all the like a lot of the existential questions that a lot of people have in college um, or in high school is like, does God exist? Is God good? Is God loving? Because like quite frankly, he wasn't helping me in my situation, or at least that's how I felt. And I remember like I didn't do like the deepest dive, but it was like kind of deepish. I remember reading Case for Christ, Case for Faith. Hmm. Uh, I watched Ken Ham versus Bill Nye, which was, it was okay. Uh, <laughs> and a debate between William Lane Craig and uh, Christopher Hitchens. And I watched all these, read some other stuff online too, and thought about it. And I was like, hmm, I really don't know with certainty whether or not God exists. But I think based on a few like reasons, whether it's like objective morality, right? That I see, I don't, I don't, I don't know a perfect argument for this, but I'm like objective morality seems about right. 
I feel like I need a philosophical reason to live my life. Like I need purpose in my life. When I apply Occam's razor to science, I feel like it slightly leans on the side of like, it's probably more likely that there's a God than all this was random chance. When I look at the historicity of Christ, I'm like, it's probably like real, like historicity of Christ really got me in case for Christ. And then when I hear other people's testimonies, I'm like, I don't, I don't see how this isn't real in their lives. And if it's been impacted, impacted them so much, therefore it can impact mine. So while there was a lot of doubt, there was enough intellectual proof for me at the time to be like, okay, I, I believe in God. I'm going to accept. And then the, um, I think the logic behind that was such that um, it's like, first I need to prove to myself that God exists. If God exists, then I need to prove to myself that a Christian God exists. And I think this is the line of reasoning that a lot of people take. Then like, which God is the right God or real God. And if it's that God, then whatever that God has said must be true. And I have to obey. And it's interesting because I came to these conclusions, I think, around the end of May. And it was around the end of April when, through an act of grace, I was found out for using pornography. And literally, I started meeting with my youth pastor, Nick Engel. Love you, Nick. If you're listening to this, I love you, buddy. Um, you're the best. You inspired this bald haircut. Anyways, but it was, it was literally like, I started meeting with Nick. And from that moment, from that day on, like literally that day on, I have not used porn at all. Like none of that and all that what what was wiped out of my life. I'm like, there's no other explanation for this than God, right? It's a it's an act of grace. It's a means of his mercy, um, from which he freed me from this bondage to this sort of sin. And I know a lot of people have it a lot harder than I did, but honestly, that was like one of the biggest moments that I knew coming out of eighth grade that God was real. <sighs> yeah. And then um, oh, buddy. Oh boy. <laughs> Moving into ninth grade, things started getting real interesting and I think it was pretty evident to me how um, a lot of eighth grade was setting up for ninth grade, like how God used eighth grade as a means to prepare me for ninth grade. Because in ninth grade, in the fall of ninth grade, I remember for the first time, like feeling like there is something deeply wrong with my family. Like my parents argue way too much. They can't agree on anything. And like things just don't look good. And I remember my dad being away on a business trip. And he's just getting so frustrated in this one moment with my mom that I ran outside and I, we had a basketball net that's like dilapidated. And I took a basketball and just started chucking it at it as hard as I could. My mom thought I ran away. But I was like, what, what is going on? Like, I don't understand this. And things came to a head in October. Was it like, it was like th- five days after my birthday when like one day I come home from table tennis practice because I played ping pong in high school and parents disappeared. And then... My dad walks into my room like several hours later. It's like, yeah, I think your mom and I are getting divorced. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, holy crap, like what? Uh, <laughs> and in that moment, like everything was like shaking. Like I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know how to process the situation. And all I knew was that like everything ahead was like uncertain. And the reason why I say that God used eighth grade to set me up for ninth grade is because if I had not found like enough reason to believe in God in eighth grade, then I highly doubt that would have been the case in ninth grade. If God had not lifted me out of a place of sin or that sort of sin in eighth grade, then ninth grade would have gotten so much worse. If I had not started talking to Nick in eighth grade, then ninth grade would have been unbearable because Nick like walked me through like so much of like processing my parents' relationship because he he was in a very similar situation. Like walk me through like seeking God in the midst of that and how I'm doing with God and how I'm 
relying on God and coming to back to God in the midst of everything. And so, yeah, like moving forward in ninth grade, like my parents miraculously didn't get divorced like that first week. And like weeks after it came up again. And like, I remember being like in a, in a slight depression in like November, just being like, oh my gosh, everything sucks because it felt like the end was coming. Like the first month wasn't it, but the second month's got to be it because things are still getting worse. Um, but it didn't happen, right? It didn't happen. Um, they didn't get divorced. And instead, there was like moments of like God just giving me peace somehow through the midst of that, through reading the, what is it? The Count of Monte Cristo, like the last, the last uh, page of the abridged version. I don't know what, what was so significant about it, but I remember reading it. I was like, wow, I feel, it's not the Bible, but I feel like God says something to me in that about like dealing with suffering and dealing with sorrow. So yeah, the situation where parents like died down for a few few months, but there came a point in March where everything just like flared up again. And there were several reasons for this that I won't get into in this podcast, but I remember I went on a church trip and it was, it was probably up to that point in my life, the most fun I've had, because I think for the first time I felt like I was accepted by a group of people because like growing up, I was always the nerdy kid who somehow like tried hard at sports and did okay, even though I was very unathletic. I was also the orchestra kid and I was like, you know, just like the smart kid that everyone was like, oh, he knows all the answers to. And then there were other smart kids who were like, oh, but you're not as smart as us. And I'm like, ah, ah. And it was like, <laughs> okay. Like, <laughs> um, but yeah, it was like for the first time, like my youth group, like we, we, we went on a trip to Boston to Eastern Nazarene College for like this uh, thing that we did every year called Festival of Life. And we just competed in like different sports against different districts in the Nazarene church. And I played table tennis, right? And I like wiped the floor of everyone except for one person. He was a little bit hard, but that's okay. But everyone in my youth group showed up and like cheered me on. And I was like, what the heck? What is, what is this? What is this? They, they like the fact that I played ping pong for like a sport. Like that's kind of funny. But I remember like from right after riding that wave of acceptance and riding that wave of, wave of good feelings, being on the bus ride home and like just feeling in the pit of my stomach, like, holy crap, this could be the day when I get off the bus, I get driven home, and I see both my parents sitting at the table and be like, Caleb, this is real. It's over. And yeah, that was like the hardest bus ride I think I've ever ever had in my life. And, But it, it was still incredible to me now that when I think back to it, um, because that day the situation wasn't over. Like, I don't know what happened, but my mom said six more years, right? Six more years for however long um, until my younger brother graduated, then they would figure this out again. And it was like in that moment, there was not only this, how do I say? I think throughout the whole situation, I was, I would, I looked at both my parents and I saw deeply hypocritical living. I said to myself and I said to Nick many times, I think it's like, if, two Christians are in a marriage or living this relationship out, how can it, how can things end up this way? How can God let this person do that or that person do that and not fix the situation if both people are Christian, if both people profess faith and both people are like saying that they're seeking after God's will, seeking to do what he tells them to, how could he let the situation end up this way? And after like spending like six months, like 
eight months maybe like feeling like cycling through phases of like man i don't know if my parents even love me right like because they're going through this whole thing and like even though i knew like from the way that they've provided for me throughout my entire life it's like no going through that situation you're like ah i don't i don't know right because if you really love me wouldn't you love one another first and i remember reading all these like books on marriage and like counseling and like one or two books on parenting too and being like it's all there it's like there why why can't you just do it and so as a result following ninth grade i ended up distancing myself i think a lot from my parents and because i didn't want to get tangled up in that again and what also happened was i think i became very judgmental as a result like like i i profess christianity i believe that these things are true and i am now striving to do live my life in such a way that it's right and abides by the bible and yet here are these people that don't do that and they dare call themselves Christian when they are living in a life of sin. And I remember over time as I progressed throughout youth group, I would see or hear about people who did things and I'd be like, how dare they come to youth group, right? How, how, dare, how dare you call yourself a Christian when you one moment go from like leading worship on stage to doing this like the next weekend? How dare you do all these things, right? And, but it's also so funny because like throughout this entire time, I'm thinking back now, it's like every other day I had to like convince myself that God was real. Like every other day, this is how deeply hypocritical I was and prideful and self-righteous. Every other day I'd be like, man, I don't think God exists. But then I'd be like, no, he does, Caleb. Here are the reasons why. Same reasons in eighth grade. They're still true. And I was like, yeah, and they're probably still true. So I'm like, okay, I think, I think this is legit. So it was so funny to me, like thinking about that. But yeah, that, that's how my high school life was. And it was punctuated by, I think, me serving, doing sound in my youth group. But I think, oh, this is interesting. I hadn't thought about this in a while until like last night when I was preparing for this. FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I served as huddle leader for like three years of my high school uh, career. I don't know how, but I guess it's because I asked. And Mr. B, shouts to Mr. B, let me, let me join. But one person in particular, um, Ryan May, who went to my church, Tommy, you've met. What an absolute baller. He was one guy in like high school that took his faith like really seriously. Like I, I looked up to Ryan as an example of what it meant to live a Christian life in high school in particular. Like we, we, we always say the cliche of like, oh, you, if you're Christian, then other people would be like, oh, why do you do things like a certain way? Or like, why do you live life a certain way? People actually said that about Ryan. Okay. People actually said that about Ryan. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, what? And so... <laughs> Ryan May was a big inspiration and he was also a huddle leader in FCA. And I remember, oh, we went to two summit meetings and this is like, these are meetings for like uh, all the FCA leaders in the district or like the region or whatever. And we would show up and there would be all these other schools, like for those people in the area, like to be, I'm from Athacton, there'd be like people from Souderton or like North Penn and stuff like that. And I would hear all these leaders talk about all the, all the evangelism they did in, in their schools, all the ways that they were serving their schools and all the events that they did and how many people came out to it and how they were able to spread the gospel. And I would turn and look at Ryan and be like, Ryan, we don't do anything. Like we just meet on a Tuesday morning and have free breakfast and do like a short devotional that I would sometimes give out of my own self-righteousness thinking that I could do a better devotional than other people thinking back on it. But it's like, we don't do anything. We don't even do like a Thanksgiving like or like fundraiser or like something like that. And so I remember this is 11th grade now, but going into 12th grade, I was like, yeah, well, we have to do this. And it didn't happen because I 
I didn't do it. <laughs> right? There were other leaders. There were other leaders, but I was the most senior member, and I was probably the most well-respected at the time too, um, and the most committed. And I didn't push for it, and things didn't happen. And I remember coming out of senior year, feeling like this was like out of all the things throughout my high school career, this is the one thing that I felt the most deeply convicted about. Like it's like God was saying, Caleb, I gave you the opportunity, I gave you the platform, and you did not obey. And you wasted that talent that I gave you. And like, I was like, holy crap, you're right, God. Like, I look back, I had all the ability to do it or to work with other people to do it. And I didn't. And so we're getting, we're getting to the good part of the story now. We're almost hitting freshman year. But that was an interesting moment because from that moment forward, I was like, God, wherever you put me, wherever I end up, the first thing I'm going to do is figure out how I'm going to serve. I'm going to figure out how I'm going to serve wherever I end up. And funnily enough, like flash forward like a few months, Christian Union, week two, your boy's doing sound. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, it worked out. God's convictions are real. But anyways, yeah, so, okay. August is when things really start getting interesting for me. And this whole cycle of like really coming to know God, I think began to first take place. So first and foremost, uh, we'll backtrack a little bit. In April, I came to Quaker Days and I met Fuji and Christian Union. Fuji and I had a long conversation about sound and Fairview Village Church because he's been there uh, with his kids and family and stuff like that for our Easter egg hunt or something. Shout out to our Easter egg hunt. Y'all should come out, I guess. Um, but yeah, I remember talking to Fuji. I remember talking to Tommy, who was like a cool sophomore guy who <laughs> asked me some like random question about a water bottle rolling down a ramp because he thought he knew physics. And I remember <laughs> Jackson and I remember Andrew Roberts because Andrew Roberts in particular gave me his number without even knowing whether or not I was coming to Penn and said, whatever help you need with physics moving forward, just text me and I'll help. And mm. I was like, holy crap, this guy, like what the? <laughs> and what was that, April? There was some, something in May that I forgot, but that's okay. We'll move forward into August because August is interesting. August, I was a FCA huddle leader for FCA camp um, at a church. And so I was teaching sixth graders, fifth and sixth graders, leading their devotionals. And I was really not a part of the um, sports aspect because there are other more athletic people and more popular and sociable people than me. But what struck me during FCA camp was the last day. Last day, what I taught on was Parable of the Rich Young Servant, uh, Rich Young Ruler, sorry. And I remember I was like, oh, I got this. I, I'm going to hit the kids with this question. Like, what does Jesus ask the guy to give up, right? He asked the, he asked the Rich Young Ruler to give up like something that was probably the most uh, important thing to him on this earth or in his life. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to ask the kids, like, what is the most important thing to you? And would you be willing to give that up for Jesus? And I was like, well, hold on, <laughs> wait, what's the most important thing to me? And at the time it was a relationship uh, that I was in. And I was like, okay, that relationship with this, with my girlfriend, would I be willing to give that up for Jesus? And then when I sat there and I really contemplating it, I was like, no, <laughs> no way, no. And I was like, wait, there's something fundamentally wrong with that because I profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. I've made all this log all these logical leaps like back in eighth grade and throughout high school saying that if Jesus, if God is real, then I have to follow God and I have to obey. And yet here I am sitting, sitting here at this table as I'm talking to these kids, unable to say yes, because I don't actually love Jesus. And... The saving grace in the passage was um, when Peter says to Jesus, oh, we've given up everything. Like, how, how can anyone enter the kingdom? And Jesus is like, by, by man, this is impossible. By grace, by, 
my uh, God, all things are possible or grace or something like that. And so, but that was like the paradigm that I was coming into the school year with. I was like, what's it mean to be all in and sold out for Jesus? And I remember the thing I was going to say in May or June. And that was the fact that I got a random roommate assignment. His name is uh, Jeremiah Beeler. <laughs> Some of y'all may know him. Um, still, still boggles my mind how we were both, we both applied random and we both ended up as roommates. And how I knew he was Christian was because he had Romans 12, 2 in his bio. I texted him like, yo, you like Romans 12, 2? He's like, yeah, do you? I'm like, yeah, I love it. And he's like, cool, faith is important to me. I'm like, faith is important to me too. And that's how we knew we were going to get off to a good start. So. <laughs> huh. Is that actually how it went down? <laughs> that's actually, I think, how it went down. Like, he emailed me saying like, oh, we should get in contact sooner or later to figure things out. And then, of course, I was out at breakfast with some high school friends and we were stalking his profile. And we were like, oh, he's valedictorian of his high school. He's like this and that. And, oh, Romans 12 too. I'm like, Romans 12 too. I'm going to keep that in my mind. And I, after he emails, I'm like, oh, here's my number. And I texted you like Romans 12 too. And that's, yeah, that's how things went down. Wow. Um, that's how I knew. That's how he knew, hopefully. But yeah, moving forward into um, September, I remember one of the first conversations that I had with Jerry was what does it mean to do everything to the glory for the glory of God. And I don't exactly remember what the results of that conversation were, but the effects were actually a little bit profound because I remember walking to class each day and thinking, what's it mean to actually do everything for the glory of God? Like, what's it mean to live my life for the glory of God? And all of a sudden I began contemplating like the Bible more than I had before. And it was like, wait, hold on. I just have one conversation with Jerry. And so these are two paradigms. Uh, what's it mean to be all in? What's it mean to live for the glory of God that I was taking into the semester? And so I guess the next thing that really happened that was really interesting was uh, ending up in Eric Hoover's uh, Bible course. <laughs> oh my gosh. Eric Hoover, if you're listening to this, Eric, I love you. Um, you're the best. Thanks for birthing me into Reformed Theology. <laughs> but I remember... In high school, out of my pridefulness, I would I said to myself so many times, like, man, I know the Bible better than so many other people. And this was because, like, me being, going to my church, I was probably, like, the smartest kid in my grade. And whatever, like, Pat, like Nick, when he preached, he would say things and I would remember. When I went to, like, the adult service, like, Pastor Dave, when he said things, I would remember. I would remember things that I heard on the radio from, like, Caleb or whatever, or, like, whatever other um, Christian channel there is um, that did sermons. And I would remember like reading stuff in eighth grade and like all these other things or like obscure passages that like someone re mentioned once. And I was like, man, I know so much more than everyone else. Like what else is there to learn about the Bible? What else is there to learn about God? Like I, I, I know, I know it all. And then I show up and Eric Hoover's like, Hey, you think you know stuff? Like you don't know anything. And he's like explaining the Bible in such a way and such an analytical way that I was like, Holy crap. Like I actually don't know anything, but what, I think was the most important, what, what was the um, biggest takeaway for me um, doing Hebrews in freshman fall with Eric was, yes, first that I don't, I don't know anything about, about God or the Bible, but it was more so how he approached scripture and the analytical way that he took or methodology that he took to like reading and like figuring things out. I mean, we spent like three weeks on Hebrews 1. <laughs> He's like, oh, we got to keep moving on. But like every week there'll be something new. I'm like, man, this is this is the depth and the intensity that I can take to reading scripture. Like I remember like AP Lit, not the greatest class, right? But I remember reading like stuff like Brave New World and like analyzing it and being like, holy crap, there's like so much to Brave New World. Like Solo means this and like this means that. And 
all of a sudden it's like I can do that with the Bible too and get more meaning out of it. And so starting like really, I think in December when things started clicking, I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start reading my Bible. I'm going to read through the New Testament, uh, maybe like one or two chapters a night. And I'm going to like really deep, like dive into it and like think through it. And ESV study Bible helped a lot. And man, yeah, it's so like now when I think back on it, it's so confounding to me how I spent so many years thinking that I didn't need to read the Bible all that much and like still being, still judging others for not reading their Bible. It's like, what, what was I doing? I was such an idiot. Um, but this all culminated at least with scripture reading over winter break that year when I, I remember it's like 3 a.m. Um, after I spent, I'm, I'm sleeping in, uh, Josh and I are sharing a room. And so he's gone to bed uh, after we've been doing some talking or playing video games or whatever. So I'm reading first Corinthians by flashlight on my phone. I remember like just reading verses that I remember reading before or like hearing people preach about before and just being blown away by the truth that is inherent in them. I remember reading and like just getting like excited, like holy, like now I have my bro moments. I didn't have bro moments back then, but like I was like, bruh, in whatever way I said bruh back then. <laughs> um, and it was like, wow, there's so much to scripture. There's so much to this. And all of a sudden the excitement for reading the Bible like came. I was like, this is new. This is new. This is, this is encouraging. This is a good thing. And oh my gosh, holy crap, what's, when is it? Yes, now we are at winter retreat. Now we are at winter retreat. This is the quintessential Kailbot winter retreat story. If you've heard this before, this is probably the only part of my testimony that many of you have heard before. Um, but winter retreat was a big moment for me because that was like the first time I think like all these things like culminated into winter retreat. And for the first time, I understood my identity in Christ. And for the first time, I understood the love of the Father. For the first time, I understood what it meant to be Christian, like truly. I don't think that I wasn't Christian before or that I didn't believe. But like the understanding of revelation, the depth of knowledge of grace back then was certainly nothing compared to what happened afterwards. And so winter retreat, interesting. Oh, here we go. Nick Nowak is speaking on mental health. Yes, mental health. This is actually somewhat important. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm having a good time. I'm in Tommy's small group. Tommy's a baller. Um, and I'm having a good time. And I remember I set up sound for this. Um, so it's me and Paul um, and Fuji. And we all went out early, like three hours early. I'm I'm basically a sound guy now for Christian Union, if I remember correctly. Um, because Paul's like, I'll just help. Yeah, I love Paul. And yeah, so I right, set the scene. And now it's Saturday night. We just finished doing skits. Everyone leaves uh, to go play Avalon in the cafeteria, which is which was still an accepted activity back then. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember it's me and Paul. I think Fuji went to bed at this point. But it's me and Paul. And Paul's like talking about like some of his frustrations with planning to retreat at that point because he was conferences MTL. Uh, the only conferences MTL. And he was talking about like some of the frustrations he had with how things went and how some people acted and stuff like that. And opening up about that. Nice one, Isaiah. We can cut that out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Sorry, Tommy. If you put your phone on top of my interface, sometimes it causes uh, interference. Oh, yeah, we're keeping, we're keeping that one in. Come on, Tommy. Come on, Tommy. No, we're not keeping that one in. Take that on. one out. I thought you knew how to do podcasts. Take that one out. No, Get, we're not taking that we're one We're at the climax. Don't interrupt. <laughs> we're not at the climax For yet. For my mistakes. There's still five more minutes to it. No, I'm kidding. Rising um, action. This how is the rising action. ruining everything? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Talk about Paul. But here we go. So Paul then leaves. And it's just me because I'm like, I'm going to clean up the stage. I'm going to set the cables. I'm going to do mic checks and stuff like that to make sure everything's good for Sunday because things have been moved around for skits. 
And so I get up there, I do my thing. I coil the cables because I'm picky about cables and I'm doing everything. And then I finish and I stand there, I look out over the room and all of a sudden I'm just hit by this like crushing weight of loneliness and sadness. I'm like, what the heck, right? Like I haven't felt this way before. As far as I know, I don't deal with like depression. I was just having a really good time, right? I was having fun with Tommy doing skits and he was doing some like weird Alexander Hamilton thing. Um, and (laughs) (laughs) you did your accent, (laughs) which, uh, yeah, we're not going to say right here. Um, but I remember sitting down and like feeling burnt out from, um, so much human interaction, right? Like a little bit claustrophobic, but also like just feeling lonely and sad for no reason. And I really didn't have the words to describe it. What's interesting is because Nick Nowak spent the whole weekend telling us how we should work through mental health, instead of pushing it down like I normally would, I was like, I should probably work this out. And so I played piano for a little bit. It didn't help. And then I went to the cafeteria. I saw Jerry and Jazzo. They were engaged in Avalon. I was like, I don't want to disrupt them or bother them. So I went to the cabin. This is like half an hour, 45 minutes later. And Paul Um is still up. Paul Um is still up lying in bed. I sit down next to his bed. I'm like, Paul, you ever feel like lonely and sad, like in a room full of people for no reason? He's like, yeah, man, you want to talk? And I was like, actually this close to saying like, nah, I'm going to bed. I was like, yeah, let's talk. So we go to the room, sit, sit down in the room next to the cafeteria. And whew, we start having a conversation. Um, I think... As we're as we're walking over, as we first start talking, I realized that at least part of this sadness or loneliness in the moment came from what I felt was a lack of appreciation for the effort that I put into service. Um, because I had been like, oh, service is going to be my thing. Uh, I'm going to serve wherever God puts me. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do all these things. But I show up to winter retreat and I spend all this extra time like setting up and doing things right and doing things professionally. And... Like everyone's reaction to worship is exactly the same as though I had set up in like 15 minutes at a normal filia. And I'm like, wow, who am I serving? Who am I serving? Like, why, why am I doing this? And do people even care about me? Why, why isn't knowing that God cares enough as well? And those are all questions that went into that conversation. And one of the things that Paul asked me is so funny. Paul asked me this question like three times. And each time the understanding grew a little bit deeper. But the first time he asked me, he's like, Caleb, what do you want out of worship? And I said, oh, I want to see people's lives transformed by worship, right? Like I want to see them come to a deeper understanding of who God is because of worship, because I'm thinking about like the people who have like the really like good experiences when they're like, they're all sold out and stuff like that. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. You can't do that. That's like Holy Spirit work. You can't, you can't do worship well enough to like transform a heart, transform a life. I was like, bro, you're right. I didn't think about that one before. And he's like, so Caleb, what do you want out of worship? And so I toned it down a bit. I was like, I want to help people meaningfully engage with God, right? Like interact in the spirit in some way. And so from there, we have like this long discussion. We have this long conversation and it was really random. It felt really random because like there were a lot of things that came up that I remember talking about, but I didn't write down in my journal. So I don't know if it was like of theological importance, <laughs> but like a lot of things came up, but everything seemed to tie back together at the end. Um, so amongst those were like, Oh, what was it like doing worship in my or doing sound in my church? And it's like, well, every week we were kind of like a we're like a megaish church, we're like popping. So the main service, big light show, 
big like sound like rock band jordan the guy who taught me like i say like 80 percent of what i know now he balls out every week it sounds great love you jordan he still provides tech support every once in a while when i run into stuff here at cu <laughs> and then there, so there would be that at the main service every week and then there would be me it with the youth band with old equipment kids who didn't know how to sing kids who didn't know how to play whatever and i'd be here trying to save the production and like week after week and then also moving from there into a more professional environment with a small music venue that i worked at over the summer um, before i came to penn and how that played into how i view production here and then from there the conversation somehow went to authenticity which is interesting because that was something that i was very angry about in high school. And one of the things that scared me at the moment about CU was the fact that um, this is not to throw shade at Brown's CU, but my friend who goes to Brown was like, I would not have gone to Brown if I had known there was no Christian community there, which was a very interesting story in and of itself because uh, honestly, the summer before I came, hearing Jeremy's testimony and how he changed that summer, literally before college, I was like, holy crap, Holy Spirit's real, guys, real. I was like, ah, anyways. Um, but he said that. And I was like, what about CU? He's like, oh, CU's like not good. And there were other things that he said. And I was like, what if our CU's the exact same way? Like, I don't know these people. I thought my church was great until I got to know them. What if CU's exactly the same way here? And so Paul talked about that, talked about authenticity. And within that conversation, we also talked about people leaving CU, um, how his class has gotten much smaller how each class gets smaller as it goes on. And whew, and then from there, um, somehow we get onto the topic of my girlfriend at the time. And we're like talking about her. And Paul, I remember Paul just asked an innocuous question because there was a lull in the conversation. He's like, oh, how, how's she doing? And I was like, great. You know what, Paul? You know why I realized like from the moment we first started dating is that we have passionate love, but I don't feel that passionate love for Christ. And then from there, it's like, oh my gosh, that, that's, the answer, that, that's, that's the key, right? It's like, wait, hold on. I don't feel passionate love for Christ. I thought about this back then when we first started dating and like what it meant. And I was like, huh. And, but because it was, uh, we first started dating and the Eagles won the Super Bowl and I was really happy. I was like, yeah, there's no reason to think too much about it. But now it was like, <laughs> now it was like, hold on. I need to figure this out. Like, what, what is the problem here? wait, hold on, what does it mean to have passionate love for Christ? Is that the missing piece of the puzzle? Would that solve all the doubts that I've had throughout high school? Is that what I'm looking for? Because like, I need that sort of like validation in order for this whole faith thing to be real because I never, like, whenever people in high school would be like, oh, the spirit's moving, I'd be like, what's moving? Like, the wind? Like, it's a little breezy in here. Like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. When people are like very passionately worshiping corporately, I'd be like, okay. And like half, most of the time in high school, like, during corporate worship, I would never sing because I only wanted to sing when I truly meant the words that I was singing. And that rarely happened. That rarely happened. And so Paul and I are talking about this. And he's like, wait, when, when, do you, uh, when, when is it that you feel like at least the most passionate for Christ or maybe like his presence the most? And it's like, wait, no, it is the moments when I'm able to corporately worship, when I'm able to engage in corporate worship. And he's like, okay, when do you engage in corporate worship? Oh, it's when I'm doing sound. Wait, why is it when I'm doing sound? It's because when I'm doing sound, I put all this work in to make it sound great. I put all this work in and I know I can't sit in the audience anymore and say, I would have done that, I would have done that and judge the person who's doing sound <laughs> for being bad. Instead, I'm there, I put in the best of my work and then I, I'm like, well, I, I've done all I can. Like, 
Kids just don't want to sing in tune, I guess, or don't know how to play the drums. The rest is up to God. And like the moment that it gets to, sorry, Isaiah, I didn't mean to add you. <laughs> I've been taking drum lessons for nine weeks. I'm not insulted at all. <laughs> but I would, I, like, it was interesting because I remember without fail, almost without fail, like each time, even in youth group, once I hit the point of like, this is all I can do. The rest is up to God. Then I would inevitably find myself singing and like worshiping with everyone else. And then all of a sudden the answer became so clear, right? Paul's like, what do you want out of worship? I'm like, I want to experience God for myself. I want to experience his presence. I want to experience his love because it's only within this like context am I able to ever feel it or like experience. And I don't mean to sound like I'm speaking about like some sort of mystic experience or like some, something that would validate like faith um, beyond what we need to. But like there was, there was a sense of longing for something greater. I think within me that was like, Holy crap. I, if I, if I could only get that, know for, for certain that God's love is real, know for certain his grace is real, that I am adopted as a son, then I would like truly believe. Then I would truly believe beyond just my intellect and truly believe and let that sink into my heart. And as I said that, I was like, holy crap, this is, this is like the hands down the biggest realization that I've had in my life. I remember sitting there and Paul's like looking at me like, man, we, we did it. Like, holy crap. I feel like you just had a big realization. I'm like, yeah, I had a really big realization. (laughs) And also, oh, and then Paul's like, bro, dude, we got to pray about this. I'm like, okay. Like for the first time, I'm like, yeah, I want to pray about it. And so Paul starts. He says this like really, you know, if for those of you who've heard Paul pray, um, this is the first time I heard Paul pray. And I was like, wow, this guy is really good at praying. Like, man, if you've heard me pray now, like the way I pray now is nothing like how I prayed then. But I remember in that moment uh, when Paul's like, you can pray now if you want. I was like, of course I pray. And my speech was so stuttery. Mm-hmm. I remember like, oh, God, God, like that. But like, in, in any other context before that, it's so so crazy to me. In other, any other context before that, I would have heard Paul pray and been so intimidated. But instead, in that moment, I was like, no, Paul's praying from his heart. He's like telling God, like he's praising God for what has just happened. And now I'm like overwhelmed by God's goodness and grace in a way that I, can't, I couldn't understand then. And I still don't understand now. And all I could do was just like stammer out the few words that I could praising God. And, just, and that was like, honestly, the most heartfelt prayer that I've prayed my entire life like every other time even when i was praying about my parents it's like there was like some like reservation right like it's like oh i don't have the assurance oh man i was reading calvin's commentary on daniel last night he's like we need to pray with assurance like there's a there's like a aspect of prayer that's like we can approach god with confidence and we have assurance that he will answer because he's a good father whether or not he's like going to give us grant us a request it doesn't matter but his will will be done and we have assurance that it's good and for the first time, I prayed with that assurance. And I remember walking out of there, um, that room with Paul, and we, we finished up by talking a little bit outside. And I was like, man, what? he's like, what would it be like if you truly felt this, like felt God, felt Christ? Um, and I was like, man, all the doubts would go away, right? Like it would be, it would validate any, everything. And I'm saying this as I'm realizing that I am like in the presence of God in that moment. And honestly, I was like, wow, this is, not only have I confronted my doubts as to whether or not I am like an authentic Christian um, throughout high school, but I'm like, man, look at the depths of my self-righteousness, but also look at the heights of God's grace mm-hmm. and look at, look at the way he's redeemed me as his, as his son and how he's instilled within me this desire to seek him, even though I didn't like consciously know that that was what I was seeking after the whole time. And that was an incredible moment. And I think moving forward, this is like now we're on the uh, 
was it the dropping action the decreasing action um falling. but it is never decreasing it's always going up falling action <laughs> right it's always going up but like the next week so so you heard this part of the story before because i shared it at the open mic affiliate but we're freshmen and friends jerry and i had decided that we were going to start this shouts to isaiah the og let's go isaiah <laughs> but we decided to start this second semester and I'll, jerry was like oh we want to hang out and i'm like okay but the week that followed, I think, for the first time, I began to really see God in like everything. I re- really began to see God in everything and feel his presence in everything. And I remember this is Saturday night now after um, our first freshman and friends. And I it's like 3 a.m. because we were talking about something. Yes, we were talking about something like starting a company that never happened. <laughs> and I'm getting into the shower. And for the first time, I say for the first time a lot because it was for the first time. But for the first time, I'm like thinking about truly what it meant for people to leave Christian Union and to leave a gospel-centered community without like actually getting plugged into another one, right? Like there are people that do leave to join church or whatever, but I'm talking about like people who leave because life gets stressful, life gets busy. And I remember getting into the shower and all of a sudden feeling like this brokenness, like this visceral brokenness and hurt in my heart of people not knowing God and how broken it was, right? Like how hopeless. And even if they didn't know it was hopeless, how, how much it hurt, right? To look for, look for what they thought was God in other places. And for the first time, I kid you not, in four years, since the whole situation with my parents, I break down and I'm sobbing in the shower for like 10 minutes. And like, I, I just can't stop crying because every time I thought about like people in my class, people in like other classes in CU, um, like, what if this person, like, what if, what if these groups of people left, or what if, and it, it'd be like, no, God, like, please don't let them go. Like, God, you show me a bit of your goodness. Why don't you show them a bit of, show them enough of your goodness, either through like direct work or like through your community, but just like, don't let them go. Right. Don't let them go. And it, it was just a, such a visceral moment where it's like in that moment, I felt like I understood just a little bit more of God's brokenness or his heart for the lost. And yeah, that was, that was a big moment for Caleb Watt, but um, I can keep going all throughout this year and everything that I've learned. But that I think going into winter retreat and starting freshman and friends, those were the two biggest things or freshman and friends is the result of winter retreat to the biggest time when I was like, man, like I understand a little bit better now. Like it's like we, uh, what Paul says, like now we see in a mirror, um, then we shall see face to face. It's like, well, maybe a little patch of that mirror got like polished a little bit better and I can see it. And yeah, like the Caleb Watt of today really began to take shape. And like after winter retreat, like after winter retreat and going into the summer, I cannot imagine going into last summer or going into even the spring and yeah, like talking to my parents again for the first time and like really talking to my parents for the first time in years without having come to a deeper understanding of the gospel. Like all that really was the paradigm shift that was needed for me to even like serve the way that I do now to care the way that I do now and to be exact. So yeah, I'll leave it at that unless there are other deeper questions about anything else in the interim. Say wow, Tommy. Say wow. (laughs) Amen. That was great. (laughs) Wow. That was fantastic. (laughs) Wow. No, it is. It is. It's so Like, yeah, I've heard parts of it, but hearing it all as one consistent narrative and seeing it's 
God's so cool. Like it's so <laughs> it's so cool how he moves in your life and is with you every step of the way. Like that oh, eighth yeah. grade, ninth grade thing. I didn't know that. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. How he's able to show you that and use you being caught so to his glory and to your benefit. Yeah. That was honestly like even directly after ninth grade, I looked back and I was like, man, like how can I explain this, like the whole yeah. situation in any other way? Like what was intended for evil was God used for good. And mm-hmm. I'm like, bruh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it, yeah, it is really evident just how like God has taken the faith and, and deepened it. And, you know, it seems like I can kind of see like, you know, the purifying fire in your life mm-hmm. and how God has refined you more and more. You know, I am curious. Um, I feel like you talked about a lot of things that people in the church can relate to, you know, issues in the home, issues with your own self-righteousness and hypocrisy, you know, working in a community, but maybe not feeling recognized by the community. You know, I was wondering if, you know, for the listeners out there and all their diverse backgrounds, if there were maybe some lessons or takeaways or perspectives you'd be willing to share kind of on about, you know, any of those struggles, Mm. any of those situations that maybe could be helpful to them. First and foremost, the easiest one to answer, I think, is with service. I think with service, what the hard thing is a lot of the times is that while you're serving, you don't feel served yourself. And I think that's where a lot of that frustration came from. But what I've found time and time again, right, and it's not only with doing sound, but even with like doing freshman friends and like everything with CU, the sooner you come to realize that it's not you doing the work, but God through you, the sooner you're able to be like, God, all I desire is to be a faithful servant. All I desire is to worship you through what I'm doing. And I'm going to submit myself to you. I'm going to work to the best of my ability, but the results I leave entirely in your hands. And when that happens, I think when when that really clicks, that's when you begin to get served by your own actions because God's using you to serve others and then serve mm-hmm. yourself. And this has happened for me with sound for with running freshman friends and like all these other things too, like even making food for people like last semester. That was a big one. Yeah. So that would be my answer to that. Um, as for home situation, I feel like I cannot speak fully on that yet simply because it's not resolved. Mm-hmm. And, but I can talk about like how, I've come to cope with it. So this kind of goes into like February um, after freshman friends started. I was having a conversation with my friend uh, Matt Cho from church and we were talking about this and he just said something and I was like, man, all of a sudden I understood like, why should I, why do I need to, why am I distancing myself from my parents and why don't I actually love them the way the guys love me? Why don't I show grace? And I think there's still a lot of frustration and a lot of, Anger and Tommy, I think you know this particularly because last summer was uh, working through a ton of anger. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least so far, coming to terms with here we go again the indicative of how God first showed me grace, how God first loved me, and then like as I contemplate more and more how how self righteous I was, how much of a hypocrite I was, and yet God still chose to love me and show me grace. Then it's like, does it matter how my parents are? Should I, like, I am certain that my situation is not the worst out of out of everyone's um, situations with their parents. But even within mine, um, working through the hurt of not seeing them, like, truly love each other, it's always, the biggest help has been the constant reminder 
that God is the only one who truly loves. God is the only one who is able to love perfectly. God is the only one who is able to work in the hearts of people. And yeah, it's just like constant prayer for for that and a deepening understanding of what that means. And it's always always comes back to first and foremost, like how do I know this to be true? Is because it first happened to me. Is it first happened to me, which is why I can then turn and say, God, if it is your will, do this for this other person. Do this for my mom. Do this for my dad. And yeah, so that that would be my two responses. The second one being much less complete than the first. <laughs> so on that first response, how has your relationship with worship uh, and Christian union changed since that moment uh, you had with Paulam, since you came to that deeper understanding? Uh-huh. 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 Because we're going to move out of Christian union now and go to GCC. Uh, GCC is the church I go to here. I love my friends at GCC. But I think what God, honestly, when I think about it, <laughs> I hadn't thought about it this way before until you just asked that question. But because I'm thinking in terms of like grace and what God's given me. But GCC was also a grace. It's a grace that I ended up at GCC. And not not saying that every, every other church I checked out was bad. But the congregation worships in like a different way than all the other churches that I've worshipped. Not like, oh, we're like super like we're like running up and down the aisles. But it's like the extent to which people are participating just feels different. Right. At least to me. And so in the season, in the months following um, the conversation with Paul, it became very clear that GCC was the place that I was going to learn how to worship. And I remember just like still for a long time, like just standing there, right? Uh, so I guess I can I can say for CU, like serving in sound, doing sound, suddenly the purpose became so much more clear. And I was so I had so much more joy in doing it. I remember even like from the start, my philosophy with sound is always like remove all the distractions that help the people like engage as fast as possible. Like that's my, that's my main, um, like, I guess vision or mission statement. Um, but all of a sudden it's like, no, I'm, I'm so excited to do sound right now because I have another opportunity to serve God another opportunity to meet him, right. To understand a little bit more of his character and to praise him through song. And that was a paradigm shift. I think that was really, really interesting because sound suddenly became a lot more fun <laughs> in a lot of ways, but still working on like the corporate element of like m- me being with everyone else. Um, at GCC, I remember this was like halfway through March or like the beginning of April. And it was one day, like I'm still not like participating all that much, but I'm like trying to. And all of a sudden I'm just, I'm thinking, I'm like, man, how great is God? How great is God? Like God's sitting on his throne, um, sending his son to die for us. And now I can approach his throne with confidence. Like now I can enter the Holy of Holies with confidence. This is the God who created everything, the God who made heavens and the earth. This is the God I get to talk to as a father and approach. And then in that moment, I was like, how can I not be singing right now? And I start singing. I'm like, bro, this is it. And so from that moment on, like maybe not every time, but like really moving from that moment on every time at church and at CU and stuff like that, it would be like, wow, all I need to do is think of how good God is. And that's enough reason for me to start singing and praising. And yeah, like honestly, like learning to worship corporately and then learning to pray over the summer too were two things that really big, I think grace is given from God um, and really profound ways that I think I enjoy his presence now. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I think with all that you've said so far, I imagine like all of us have, you've kind of had a curveball with this recent Corona situation. I'm just curious, maybe, I don't know if this is the first podcast since self-isolation has begun. This is. Yeah. So could you share a little bit about what your life has looked like in the isolation okay. and maybe the things you've been working through? Okay. So first and foremost, <laughs> where do I start? It feels like last semester and this semester and actually my whole life is building up to like things. It just speaks to how connected everything is. I guess I'll start with uh, the spring break trip that we took that Tommy put together because Tommy's a G. Let's go, Tommy. Um, but over the spring break trip, I was just so encouraged and blessed to be able to be with a group of people every day and just talk about Jesus, right? And just have the space to read my Bible and the space to do everything. And over the spring break trip, I grinded through a book called <laughs> Disappearing Church, which was recommended to me by Tucker Else. And read the book in two days. And I remember sitting there afterwards reading, uh, after reading and thinking about how, how the church is disappearing, for lack of a better term, and how people put hope and trust in things that are not salient, things that are transient. Right, things that things are going to disappear, and the first five chapters of the book are talking about how culture is appropriating the church, and how the church is disappearing and losing its gospel resilience as a result. The last five chapters of the book is talking about how do we develop our gospel, own gospel resilience. And I remember as we we're riding home that Wednesday when we get the email that everyone's going to get kicked out and stuff. I remember sitting in the car next to Matt Burst, love Matt Burst, and just thinking like, man. Like everything's over. Everything's done. What does that mean? It means that the idols and all the things that people are clinging to, the hedonistic pleasures that they seek and the success, because this is not going away anytime soon. So both both idols of success and pleasure are going to be ripped away from everyone, or at least most people. And all of a sudden, I remember getting out of the car as we were we were all standing in a circle. Everyone's like crying because we were like, oh no, this is the last time we'll see each other. And I'm just like, wait, hold on. God's about to do something great here. God is going to work in mighty ways. And I'm like shaking Matt. I'm like, man, I'm so excited. And like, everyone's like, Kale, what's wrong with you? But I was in that moment so excited for what God was going to do. And I like, this is interesting because I feel like I've, I, what, who did I ask? Last time we interviewed Molly, I asked her how she hears the voice of God. For me, how I hear the voice of God, or no, I shouldn't say how I hear the voice of God. When I know God is speaking is when there's imperative that I cannot not disobey or that I cannot disobey, um, that I cannot not follow. And in that moment, I was like, there's no way I'm not staying in Philly. There's no way I'm not staying in Philly because like disappearing church has shown me that everywhere is a missions field in a way that I not understood before. Yes. Yes. I'm not saying that missions to like third world countries are like place unreached peoples. It's not important, but there is such a large need for missions in first world countries too, because everywhere we see a church, there's a high probability that it's not an actual church because it's not gospel resilient it, that the people aren't being fed the gospel and are instead being fed something that is not like, how do I come to depend on Christ greater, like more? How do I presume myself, throw myself more on the riches of his mercy and on the riches of the grace and be filled with the spirit, right? A lot of, a lot of the rhetoric that comes through, unfortunately is like, how, did, how is Jesus going to fulfill me in this moment? And like, as I understood that over the trip, 
and looking at, and just like, man, just saying to God, like, God, like, it, does it matter what I do this summer? Does it matter where I go? Does it matter what anything happens other than me doing what you tell me to do? Because there's such a need everywhere. Then it's like, okay, yeah, I'm staying in Philly. Um, I don't know why. I still don't know why. Uh, I'm here. Maybe it's because it's Tommy's last semester. He needs help. I don't know. <laughs> doing nothing. But <laughs> I just knew I had to stay. And so working through that, okay, this is interesting. Next thing that I did was I purchased Reappearing Church, which is what Mark Sayers wrote three years later. And so I worked through the book as well. And this time, I think in quarantine and isolation, has been a time of reflection for me in beginning to understand what it takes for a revival or a renewal to happen in, on a small scale and revival to happen on a large scale in the church. And what I what Sayers quickly pushes, the point Sayers quickly makes and the point that I think I didn't really contemplate before, or not that I didn't contemplate, but didn't understand, was that renewal first and foremost starts with the individual, right? And this is how Jerry and I conceptualize freshman friends and like communities and stuff like that. It's like, first and foremost, it's us loving God. Then it's us loving each other with the love that God has given us. And then through that, we love others who are just outside our circle and then outside and outside. And it's like concentric circles that move outwards. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of that picture is that God's love is not finite, it's infinite. So its reach, therefore, is also hypothetically, theoretically infinite. And so Sayer's painting the exact same picture with renewal and revival. And he's like, the first thing that happens is like, there's a crisis. There is a gateway for God's work to happen, at least throughout history. And there's a crisis. And I'm like, coronavirus. Nice. Dab. We got that checked off. <laughs> Second, there's holy discontentment. People are not happy with how things are going. I'm like, yeah, people are not happy with how things are going. I'm not happy with how things are going. Mm -hmm. Check. Third, preparation. How is the church? How are individuals preparing their hearts? to be used by God in the, in the time when he's going to move. And I was like, wait, hold on. Have I been preparing? Have I been diligently sitting down day after day, just asking God to reveal to me the depths of my self-righteousness, the depths of my sin, the depths of my idolatry, and then, say, and then confessing them and repenting day after day and working on my sin in that way? Have I been working to seek God better, to know him better with like this fervor and passion that's needed to prepare my heart to move when he desires to move? I'm like, no, I've not done that. So what quarantine has been for me has been a time of preparation. I'm like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, was like the most visceral part of this when I was like literally, I don't know, I don't think any of you know because like I stay up way later than you two do. <laughs> but <laughs> there were nights when I would, I was just like sitting there thinking um, the week before I had prayed, God revealed to me um, my sins. So like, and as Fuji says, like every time you pray that Holy Spirit's like, bro, I've been asking, I've been waiting for you to ask that. I'm so ready. And the next week, um, I'm like a few chapters into reappearing church and I just started reading Meaning of Marriage. And I was like, okay, I'll finish reading Meaning of Marriage. I'm reading that with Ethan, my big bro. And so I grinded through the book, left him in the dust, dab. But what was important was not that I grinded through the book, but that as I was reading the book, I began to realize how insidious um my family's uh, sin patterns were, how they were a part of my life, how much, how I thought about certain things wrongly out of my own pride, how I viewed relationships wrongly out of my own pride, and how just how deeply my parents' relationship affected me and caused me to think of God in certain ways and to approach life in certain ways too. And all of a sudden I was like, wow, I need to confess all these things. I need to spend so much time in prayer. Like, there, 
<laughs> like it, it was so clear to me, like uh, Romans, like Romans seven, when Paul says, "Wretched man that I am," like in that that week, and the like, even up to now, I'm like, "Wretched man that I am." Like, and I think that's been what's characterized my quarantine. First, like thinking about my own personal sin, and then praying and contending for the church, because it's like, man, God, you you are the only one. Like, we can have all this liturgy. We can have all the right forms of worship. And we can have all these good things, but you are the only one that can bring the fire that will light the renewal in our hearts. You're the only one that can cause that renewal in each individual person to spread to other people within the church, spread to other people within the community, and then move beyond the church into onto Penn's campus, onto like wherever. And actually what encouraged me the most when I was thinking and praying through this was knowing that, like, was it two years ago, three years ago, Paul... Paul and Andrew Roberts and like a few other people like Evan Thomas and stuff like that. Paul told me about this over retreat this past year, how they would gather like every week just to pray specifically for this, to contend for Penn. And I was like, man, like realizing that, like people have probably been doing this ever since Penn was planted. Ever since Penn was founded, there was probably a group of Christians somewhere at some point, maybe on the campus, maybe not, praying that the spirit would work in the lives of students here. And now there is a gateway opportunity. Like, all I can do is be like, God, prepare me to move if you desire to move now. And prepare the church to move if you desire to move now. And Lord, I'm begging you to move now. Right? It's kind of like, oh, I read Daniel 9 last night. Daniel, in Daniel 9, is um, this is the end of the 70 years of the exile. And what does Daniel do? He's like, Lord, he, he, he's like confessing his own sin. He's confessing Israel's sin. And he's like begging God to move even though it's prophesied that God would move yeah, like towards the end of the 70, 70 years of exile. And it's like, wow, there's this like, like we still have to throw ourselves upon God's mercy and God's grace and beg him out of repentance, out of a genuine desire to see his presence like pushed throughout the earth for him to be exalted, not out of our selfishness, but out of a genuine desire to know him and for other people to know him. Love God, love our neighbors. And it's like, yeah, praying for that especially over 24 hour prayer with a lot of people mm. and yeah, working through like my own sin and figuring out how I'm doing with God has been probably the biggest thing with quarantine. I think that's a very different experience from a lot of other people who are like at home and being like, how do I deal with family and mm. stuff like that? So, and I do understand that, but yeah, for me personally, that's what my quarantine has been. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's cool to see how, God put that book through Tucker into your hands and then uh, <laughs> shaping the way you're thinking now. So so you got that book, you read it over spring break, which is an interesting time because that was when you transitioned into oh. official leadership as exec. Oh, shoot, that so, was a smooth segue, Tommy. So you, <laughs> I didn't even realize that. <laughs> so if you would like to talk um, first, I guess, when you were asked what was going through your head maybe, Ooh. and then, yeah, I guess just answer that one first. Okay, okay. When I was first asked... What was this JFO like sat me aside at a post filia and he's like quietly talking to me and I'm I think people were like what is going on like what <laughs> <laughs> I think you were there too Tommy you were like what's going like, on I was like why are Jackson Fultz and Caleb talking what <laughs> what is why is it so serious the what classic, are they talking about sketchy leadership <laughs> <laughs> best way to ask people to go to leadership in the corner of filia everybody able to listen yeah. <laughs> You're, you're obscured by the crowd of other people trying to do things. Uh, that's the goal. But Jackson asked me, and honestly, there were so many things that happened last semester that 
really brought me to a point. I think I remember telling you this, Tommy, at one point too, um, how I feel like the ask came at such a time when I could accept with humility. If that had been a year before, or like even four months before at the beginning of September, there were a lot of things in my heart that were still very prideful. Like, oh, I, why, why am I, uh, and I was still figuring out things like why, not why serve, but like, I forget exactly what it was, but like, how could God not call me to more? There it was. How could God not call me to more service and doing more when there's so much need in the world? And working through the pride of thinking, I know how God wants to work best. Not that God doesn't want to heal the brokenness, but like, I know that <laughs> me saying to myself that I know that I need to do this, therefore God will be glorified, was something that I had to work through, if that makes any sense. Tommy, you have a quizzical look because I phrased it poorly. I remember you explaining this to me, so I'm okay. just remembering back to that. Oh, okay. But you can say it one more time. So basically, it's like I had this thought in September or this real struggle. It's like I see the brokenness in the world. How could God not call me to serve in X, Y, and Z capacity? When that, a lot of it came out of pride or a pride that I didn't, wasn't aware of because I was saying, in essence, I know better than God. Like, I should be here because these will be the results and these will glorify God more than what he has called me to now. Of course, I can't say with confidence I knew I was doing exactly what God was calling me to, but the evidence was that I was pretty burnt out already doing what I was doing. And yeah, so what happened when I got asked? Um, there were a few thoughts. Um, I remember when JFO asked me, I went home and I went up to the fourth floor lounge in Stouffer Mayor, plopped down on a couch next to Jasso, who was doing his coding homework because that's where he does his coding homework and like just like talking because I didn't know how to process but I was utterly humbled to be asked, but I was also a little bit conflicted. First and foremost, I think it was because when I looked at CU, I could see that Christian Union was doing very well. It feels like our community is growing and it feels like God is moving in very powerful ways. And there are a lot of leaders here and a lot of a lot of people who are very grounded in their faith. When I looked at GCC, it felt like not an entirely different story, but like a different story. Things didn't look like they were going as well. And like my class was, was not very close at that time. Uh, certain people have stepped up and changed that. Shout out to Joyce Dong. And yeah, like, so at the time I was like, there was a little bit of how could God not call me to GCC when that's the community that's not doing as well. But this was something that I think I had thought about previously. And it was just something that was coming up again as I was thinking uh, in that moment. Like previously it was like, no, Caleb, you're still sitting at CU. Like after talking to Paul, um, because, you know, Paul works through my thoughts like nobody else. And then God was also like, I'm sending Jasso, and now Jasso's serving at GCC. So big yeet for Jasso. So it was a little bit of that, but then also a little bit of thinking about all the things that I wanted to do this semester, like working on my business for music and podcasting. Shout to Just Be Records. And like doing this podcast too was like a new thing that I wasn't sure how much time it was going to take. I wasn't sure if it was like doable because there were like things that we hadn't figured out with Big CU and stuff like that. And I forget what else, but like, oh yeah, continued to do like meetups with people and discipleship and meeting with Ben, Ben Zaisloff, great guy. So it was like all these things. I was like, do I have time to add exec on top of this? Because the only way to properly lead is by serving. And I'm already serving a lot in different capacities, right? Different capacities. But like, am I able to do more? And I remember... Oh, this was great. This is how my winter break started. The day after finals, so this is December 20th, I went home and I'm fasting and praying about this. And I get home around like five or six because I had an eye appointment. My mom picked me up, so I couldn't 
you know, praying at the eye appointment is kind of weird um, because they were like telling me that I had problems with my eyes or something. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> because I squint, I don't know. But <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Okay. Um, but I get home. Um, everyone's out of the house because they're doing stuff like Josh is asking friends. I don't know what my mom or dad is doing, but I'm the only one in the house. I'm like, it's time. It's time to pray and fast. So I'm reading uh, through Colossians I'm, because we did Colossians last semester. And I'm like, wow, this is great. I remember all the, a lot of things. I'm like thinking about new things. You know what would be even better? If I started journaling and writing these things down. So I ran and grabbed the snack table thing and brought it up to my room because there's no desk in my room and grabbed a pen and I started from the beginning and I get to Colossians 1, was it 24 to 29? Um, verse 28 to 29 was like super impactful, but like 24 to 20, 29 was like the whole thing. And what struck me in that moment was so interesting because in that passage, Paul is talking about how he's a steward of the ministry that he's been given and how he's like serving the gospel and stuff like that. Every other time I would, I would read that and be like, wow, Paul's doing Paul things. Like, this is great. This is a great example. But in that moment, it just like spoke to me. It's like, there's a ministry that I've been given in a sense that I'm called to be a good steward of. And verse 28 to 20, let's see if I can still remember. It's like, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone in all wisdom or something like that. And Paul ends it, verse 29 by saying, for this I, I uh, toil or something, struggling with all his energy, which he works mightily within me. Paul also talks about suffering in that passage and how he's suffering for the sake of the gospel. I'm like, holy crap, this is it. Like God is not, God is not calling me to an easy life next semester. There's going to be suffering. I'm going to have to learn something new about Jesus. I'm going to have to learn how to depend on him more. But there, there's a, if he's called me to serve in this way, he promises to give me the energy to do what I'm called to do. Mm. It's not without suffering, but he promises to provide. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I genuinely desire to see other people grow in the gospel. It has to be that. And if it's not, if it's pride, if it's self-righteousness, this will fall apart because it's outside the will of God. I'm not going to get that divine energy, you know? So, yeah, again, in that moment when I read that passage, it was it was just like the other, how, how I described earlier, like the imperative that I cannot disobey. It was like, I have to be exact now. Um, I texted JFO like 15 minutes later, and I was like, I'm, I'm in, right? I think I was the last one to accept too because everyone else was like, oh, yeah, I'm in. But I was like, no, I, don't I know. <laughs> Come on, Isaiah. You're supposed to have Isaiah's this secret intel. Isaiah's not falling for the trap. <laughs> no idea. Yeah, but, but it was, yeah, it was such a such a blatant response, I think, from God that it was something that I had, I should do, that I had to do, and that was what he was commanding. And so I accepted. And here I am, getting interviewed as a result. That's amazing. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I guess the, the natural follow-up is, You've accepted through God's grace and provision, and now you are exec. You've been for the past month or so. Oh, shoot. Yes, right. So what has that been like? I guess especially in light Isaiah had asked before about coronavirus. So what has it been like to be exec <sighs> right now in this situation? Yeah, it's been it's been a little bit weird. I think I, I, I certainly cannot speak uh, or have any measure of what being exec normally is because our tenure started during coronavirus. Mm. I mean, before we started, like us as a board meeting to talk about who we wanted for our ministry teams and like praying through that, I think was actually pretty interesting because it was a, very similar to the process Jerry and I went through to pick the next two people for freshmen and friends. So thankful for God for preparing me that way too. 
but yeah, aside from that, it's been. I think when I when I first thought about it, because I'm as um exact over SGO and comms, I was like, wow, these are like two of the main groups that can still function at this time. Like, it's not impossible, but harder to do socials. It's harder to program. It's harder to I don't know, do outreach and stuff like that. But seeking God lifestyle and communications seems pretty important. And what I've been astounded by again which I feel like I should stop being astounded by because it happens so often. But no, being astounded and amazed is incredible because it's being amazed by God's grace and provision is the people who were select, who, who are our MTLs for those positions. And I think, so, so far my experience has been a lot of meeting up with Leo and Bianca to talk about SGL things, making sure the emails are sent out, right? Uh, which are the usual. But also I think being present or at least letting people know that I'm present or they, and so this I'm losing words real quick. So let me gather my thoughts. So yeah, it's something that our exec team is very passionate about seeing unity in the body across, not just CU, but across our campus. And the first way that I think this plays out is showing that our exec team is willing to connect with people. And this is, I think best demonstrated by the fact that we have so many office hours now, not just with exec, but also SGL. Um, SGL team has uh, now a team that you're a part of, Tommy. Mm. Uh, let's go, Tommy. Wow. Uh, and, and we all hold office hours like throughout the week just for people to come and pray and talk to us. I know there like a lot of times people don't show up, but we think that the idea of, or not the idea, but the thought of knowing that there's people out there willing to talk to you and pray with you is important. And so, I mean, and then there's like other things like making sure 24-hour prayer works well and like praying with people and like being present for those things has been important but yeah that's about <laughs> that's about the exact experience so far making sure leo and bianca know what they're doing <laughs> and what we want to do and then making sure john and Jorcy know what's up too so yeah i think it's worth saying i think you guys are doing an awesome job um mm-hmm. and like you know if there's any christian union leader who's happening to be tuning in right now like I would say the same to them. Like I'm really impressed um, with the work you guys are doing. And I think it's really like paying off and being able to keep this community running and active even when, you know, we're thousands of miles Mm. apart from each other right now. Thanks, Isaiah. Yeah, I completely agree. And on that note, Caleb, how do you think in keeping Christian Union together, keeping it being a community that's serving God, um, it's aligning itself towards him, where five years from now? Oh, shoot. <laughs> oh, that was a question that I knew was coming out of prepare for. <laughs> Where five years from now, do you think we can continue to do that? Where do you think we might be doing that better? Uh, yeah, just where do you, where would you like, if you were to come back as a 25, 25 thank you. year old yeah. to Christian Union, what would you like to see? Whatever the Lord wills. <laughs> oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Whatever. You know, or maybe if that yeah. question's a little big, you know, what are some of the, <laughs> you know, what do you see right now in Christian Union where maybe there's space Ooh. for growth? Okay. It's interesting. So in thinking about, oh, I'm going to first say the thought off the top of my head, and then I will contemplate the question slightly more deeply because I feel like I have another thought that's waiting to bubble to the surface. <laughs> Sorry. Mind is like a po- wall of post-its and there's a breeze blowing. <laughs> Oh. And the post-its get blown off, and I can only read one at a time. 
Shout out to Susan Kim for coming up with that analogy because that's how I work. Anyways, um, okay. <laughs> first and foremost, I think Christian Union is in position to become a service-oriented community. I think our teaching is great. Uh, if we go to Fuji's or not Fuji's, but I think he quotes David Carson, the three three ways the gospel like plays out or shows up in the Bible or the three aspects: historical news and truth, theology. New life, discipleship, and like accountability, and then new kingdom, service, and missions. Um, I feel like we have very good teaching. We have very sound theological teaching, and I mean, my growth is certainly a testament to that. We have very good discipleship, I think, as well. Program, sure, you can say like things could get better, but things are trending better, and our ministry fellows are very involved in discipling people. Like, shouts to Fuji, who meets with me every week, and Tommy. I don't know who you meet with. Shout out to Fuji. Do I meet with Theron? Yeah. Um, yeah, we talk from time to time. Yeah, let's go. Let's go discipleship. I'm a big discipleship guy because my whole life has been characterized by discipleship. So we have great discipleship, but our missions and our outreach is a bit weak. And I think that's shown by the ways that we, how do I say, we don't do much. <laughs> like Just straight up, we don't do much outreach. We're, we feel a little bit insular as a community. So what that says to me, um, I think this analogy it's not, it's not in reappearing church, but reappearing church basically says the same thing. And Tucker said this to me. It's like, God calls us to build the altar, but he will bring the fire. And when I thought deep, more deeply about that, it's like building the altar. Why, why would we build an altar in the first place? Right? Oh, no, Fuji said this to me. So he's quoting Richard Loveless. Why would we build the altar in the first place? The altar is built. Well, like in the Old Testament, we see altars being built all the time as a sign of gratitude for what God has done. Right? Like, because God has been good to us, because God like did this here, he's struck down like Jericho or whatever. We're going to build an altar to offer sacrifices and commemorate this. And so we built our altar, our form, as Mark Sayers would put it, of worship, um, our liturgy of worship. Then it's like we have a structure for which the fire to come. And again, why I like the analogy of the altar is because it's not our desire to build the altar, but it's out of a reaction, out of indebtedness, because of grace, out of this gratitude that we built this altar. And now we are just waiting for God to bring the fire. And so in five years, uh, I forget the exact question now, but in five years, what I would hope to see is that renewal to come. Um, Is that passion to come, not just for people within the community, but for people outside the community Mm -hmm. to love one another in such a way uh, that people, it's like what Jesus says in John, was it 13 or 14? They will know you that you and my disciples because of the love that you have for one another and how deep is that love that that love goes beyond just like oh we're like friends but it goes so deep that it's like what's it mean to have union with christ have union in christ and then union with one another because of being in the body of christ what's it mean to build one another up in in the word what's it mean to be united by a spirit of peace and a spirit of love to a point where you are willing to sacrifice anything for one another and to know Christ that deeply for that to happen. And yeah, I think thinking about unity, that is the first place that it comes. If the community, if our community can learn what it means to serve one another on a, this, not saying that we don't, right? Not saying that we don't, but on this like drastically more radical way. And then for that to transfer over to loving people outside of our community, Loving our brothers and, other, and sisters in other churches and other groups and loving those on Penn's campus in Philadelphia. Holy crap. Like, imagine what God can do 
imagine what can happen when God moves in us in that way, when he sends the fire. So the prayer is that God will send the fire because I feel like we have a lot of the altar built in a lot of ways. I don't know if that kind of answers the question, but like, yeah, because I kind of sidetracked it. And I forget the other thought that was coming to the surface in my mind because it got blown off. Yeah, the wind blew too strong, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately. Yeah. No, that's a great answer, though. That is a great answer. Yeah. So, Caleb, coming up on the end of our interview here. This has been the longest one yet. Has okay. I was looking at the time. I'm like, I don't know how long it is, but it feels pretty long. It's so pretty long. It's feels like long. we should conclude soon. So, Isaiah, any Tommy, closing thoughts? Any closing questions? No, I think, like Caleb said, it's the longest interview. <laughs> we've reached our natural end, but I do appreciate you, Caleb. I do oh, appreciate that you've thanks. come here to speak with us, and like, you've had a really a lot of awesome thoughts to share with us, and. I appreciate your testimony. I appreciate your, I think I'm going to call them exhortations. uh, (laughs) I think that's what they are. Um, (laughs) Just really like you have a way to speak that really, I think moves people's hearts um, to Christ and like brings, at least I felt my attention being brought to Christ and, Mm. you know, seeing in myself, some of the, some of the things and the needs um, that you discussed. And, Mm -hmm. and so I just, yeah, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate your energy and your love. God is working amazing things in you. And I'm glad I had the chance to spend this last couple hours listening to you. Thanks, Isaiah. Thanks for taking Tommy's spot and Tommy (laughs) taking mine. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a sixth man, I guess. (laughs) Third man. Third man. Three man team. Yeah, Yeah, I I cannot say better than Isaiah. I completely agree. Thank Mm. you so much for being here, Caleb. No problem. And... To conclude, oh, here we go. This episode was brought to you by Christian Union at Penn. It was recorded, produced, and edited by Just Be Records, which is run by our very own Caleb Watt. Yee-yee. Special thanks to <laughs> insert speaker Caleb Watt <laughs> for being with us today. The view of the speakers and hosts are not necessarily reflective of Christian Union as a whole. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you got the gospel today from this episode. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time.